Hello. Welcome to The Fix. Is the management's agreement vital to your success or just a one and done? In this episode of our Conversations with the Experts series, Nigel Glenn, Non-Executive Director, Emeria, Shelley Jacobs, Director, MLM Property Management, and Martin Perry, Director, West of England Estate Management, discuss pricing, client relationships, and delivering value. The management agreement. When you first meet somebody, you send it over, you get happy when it's signed, and then it goes in the drawer and gets dust. Is that all it should be? Or is actually something, is it, a, is it an important document? And if so, where do you think we're actually not using it properly? I think the management agreement can be an important document and probably should be. And I think it's probably a tool to help us all try and uh, increase our profitability. It is very easy just to take a standard format, get it agreed with clients. And I think those of us who went through ArmaQ a few years ago were probably all guilty of having a few clients without management agreements in place. And there was a bit of catch up there. It's it's often seen as a one-time job. You do it, you you put it in the scanner and then you don't look at it again for until year dot when something goes. But I think there are elements in there which we could we can think about useful to set out for the clients the expectations that they should have of us and the expectations that we should have of the clients and the points at which we reach a boundary where we're going to, we're going to come back and say, look, that isn't within our remit. We're going to charge you some more money on a reasonable basis for this. Yeah, um, the- but there's a balance to be struck because you could write war and peace on that. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, if you present that to a potential client, they're going to run a mile, aren't they? Yeah. So I think there's a useful middle ground here, but I'm hoping that one of the things that might come out of discussions today is perhaps to identify some of those particular operational issues or problems that we have where we could put them in a contract list and say, look, guys, you know, we don't do that for standard. We're going to want some more money, but also expectations of how we want the clients to behave as clients. And one of the big things for me is getting clear instructions. If you've got to scratch around trying to lead a group to a decision, that's a really time-consuming process. Whereas if in the contract, you are you make it very clear that what you want is clear instructions from clients in certain situations, and they need to organize themselves as a group, be it directors or leaseholders, to come to a decision and give you that instruction, then I think there's, there's a potential win for us there. So how would you recommend managing clients? Because you and I have talked about this before, that if you're lucky, you might get shown around a property before you sign up for it. And that you've, under the current scenario, you kind of say, oh, I'll do this for X pounds per annum. Obviously, we don't want to go to actual numbers. We can talk about the philosophy. And then, sure as anything happens, something will crop up. And the client will say, well, that's what you do, isn't it? You know, I want you to come around to my house on Sunday evening after I've had dinner for, the, for a meeting. And I've said, I don't do Sundays. And I've got the, well, maybe you shouldn't be in this business then, re- reply. It's very difficult to manage clients. And that's me as an owner. It's even harder for property managers because, of course, they want to maintain a relationship. And it's, in a sense, no skin off their nose if they say, oh, okay, I'll do that. But the owner then is paying a property manager to do work that they're not being compensated for. Yeah, I think there's an extent to which you, you've got to be firm with client groups and explain to them that, you know, make them understand that you need to have a life, that if you're expected to turn out evenings and weekends, you know, you're not going to have any staff because people aren't going, to, aren't going to want to come and work for you in that situation. But also to make the point to them that all of the sort of extra running around stuff you do stops you from doing the job you're supposed to be doing, um, which is dealing with budgeting, accounts preparation, repairs and maintenance schedule, all the compliance stuff. And I think there's a need for us to be firm with clients so that we can demonstrate to them that we've got sufficient time to deal with things efficiently and proactively for them on the basis of our contractual obligations, rather than getting drawn down rabbit holes, which take endless amounts of time, or going to see people, as you say, Nigel, on Sunday evenings. 
it's tricky, isn't it? You've got, I go back to Vitar, we have our second biggest client who's basically threatening me with, well, if that's the way you're going to act. Uh, and this was, he, he paid a, a mate of his £2,000 to be a company secretary, I can take that number, and wanted us to do all the company secretarial work. And I was going, well, not your company secretary. And we got the old, well, if you want this contract, then you better do all that work. And second biggest client, that was a really hard one. Really hard one. And I must admit, we, we caved in. So the, I remember sitting in the office at eight o'clock on a Friday night, stuffing envelopes with a with property manager to, to send out to a couple hundred people. But then go back and say, look, guys, we want a single point of contact for your group, your leasehold group or your board. If we don't have a single point of contact, th- there will be an additional fee. There'll be an, a, a loading to your annual retainer, if you like, because it's going to be hard work. If they have an active board of directors, do they have a chairman who's doing a chairman's job? i.e. leading the board to decisions and organising the board. Because if you've got to do that as well, I found that over my career enormously time-consuming. You get some sort of semi-willing directors, but none of them wants to step up and actually take charge for the operation of that group. And trying to draw them to decisions or even draw them together to to have discussions um, can be extremely time-consuming. So again, have you got a chairman for your board? If you haven't got a chairman for your board and you want us to do, that's going to be some additional time costs. So... Um, you know, we can factor that in. And taking that back to the management agreement, you know, what we do is have separate documents for those additional services like COSEC or collecting ground rents or whatever. So it's a separate document to the management agreement. So it's very clear right from the beginning that if you want us to do that sort of bolt-on service, there is a fee for it so that it's not confused with the day-to-day management. And I think that's quite important to establish that from the beginning so that there's no sort of you know, issues later on when you're into the management of, you know, mis-expectations of, well, I assumed that you were going to do that as part of your service. Well, no, we don't do that for everybody. We do it when it's requested. And this is on the basis that we're going to do it. And this is our fee for it. Mm. It's important. What about, I mean, say, have to be very careful with anti-competition rules about pricing models. But I think if I was pointing a finger, Rick's, when they wrote the third edition, said that, a fixed price is the preferred method. And then we all then just took that to the last what you've got to do. Having talked to an anti-competition lawyer, he said that's illegal for a start because you're, you're telling people how they should price, which you shouldn't do. And when I talked to the FGTB, they said, we don't care how you charge it as long as it's fair and reasonable. So to my mind, this fixed fee is a strange one because they've all got pros and cons. You know exactly what your cash flow is going to be, service your client. But conversely, it's a bit of an open-ended buffet, as we've all found. And in a sense, that's unfair because it means good sites tend to subsidise bad sites. Because I, I don't think, certainly in the early days, you don't really know how good or bad a site is. So you just put your standard price in and keep your fingers crossed. That is, to me, an interesting thing that should we be looking at capturing time? And you don't have to charge for time because that, again, is one way of doing it. But if nothing else, to my mind, you should be thinking about how much time does a client take up? Because there might be things you can do about it. It might be, Nutty Nigel in flat one writes every day and I have to respond to it. Dear board, can you do something about this? Because I can't as a managing agent. I have to respond to Nigel who's constantly doing that. So I think there's that that to me is it, it is ways to do it. And of course, that way you'll start identifying sites that are frankly loss leading because leaseholders look at their service charge as a whole. And we've all had that, you know, I pay you £2,000 to manage my block. Managing agents tend to look at what they charge, but I'm not sure many of them actually work out what their profit is. And it can be very small. So when a big site says, oh, look, if you knock off 10 quid, you've got it. And you'll go, what's a big site? Yeah, I'll do that. You actually might from them be working for free. <laughs> I've been guilty of that as well. 
the, the difficulty with the sort of that pricing structure of time is whose time are you actually measuring? Is it just the property manager? What about all the back-end accounting functions, which probably takes up more time than your property manager? Whilst in theory, that's a good idea from a practical perspective, it's a challenge. Whose time are you actually monitoring in that way? I agree. And I think measuring time is really difficult because we are usually doing so many different things at once or almost at once. Every managing agent's day is filled with countless different clients and countless different matters and you're often jumping from one to the other a very short time if you're trying to catch up on emails or doing the phone calls or visitors to the office or any number of things um it's not as if you've just got a file for a property out for the morning and mm. you can get back and say I've spent three hours on your building this morning nice consistent quiet diligent work and so there's a time charge so i think actually capturing it what we're working on is really complex. There certainly aren't any products out there that I know of that, that are available for managing agents to be able to record time. There is a time clock on fixed flow. Here we go, fixed flow plugs on issues if you set the issue up in a certain type of way, but you've got to remember to open the issue, put the time clock on as soon as you start working on that matter. And you might find that you've been on a phone call for 20 minutes and you haven't remembered to do that. So that sort of manual um the manual effort involved in doing that time recording, I think, is really tricky for managing agents. No, I understand that. I mean, when I was a, I went out to Australia, and that is the mechanism they use, at least in Queensland. They basically say it's like 100 bucks to manage you, and that's, they'll set your AGM up for that. And then every six minutes after that is X. Yeah. And that gives the clients, actually, I suppose the attraction, that gives the clients the attraction to go, well, I'll do it all then fine, knock yourself out, or I want you to do everything or something in between. Certainly. Nigel, comment on from William Henniker, who you might remember. Uh, and William, hello, William. William says extra services is a real minefield for us. Really difficult, as Nigel has highlighted, to say no, particularly yeah. to bigger blocks that we don't want to go through, get tough with, sorry, for fear of sparking a retendering process. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point. And I, it, it would be interesting to see what members or people on the, the session today's feedback is about how the market's looking for them. How competitive does it feel out there? How robust are people able to be with their pricing? Are they being actively undercut? Because this has always been the difficulty for us, hasn't it? Is we try to be robust and pay ourselves properly to do to resource the job properly, only to find that there's or another agency decided to branch out into block management for a bit and, and are offering really low fees. Yeah. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what people feel the climate's like out there in terms of whether there's more work than businesses can manage to expand to take on, or whether they're actually having to fight against retendering and cost control from clients all the time. Yeah, I certainly encountered that retendering, which is just generally an argument to don't you dare charge us for anything, even if it's fair and reasonable and not in the contract, or else. And it is a worry, which is what I mentioned. Yeah, it's a tricky one that I still think it's a good idea to know which of your sites are chewing up a lot of your time. I agree that having a clock by on your desk is not how we operate but certainly in previous careers i've been in just at the end of the month you said to somebody you know, roughly what time did you spend 10 percent on this five on that and then that gives you an idea of where the time is going and then you can if something is particularly difficult you can start honing in on that and finding out why that one is, is time intensive and like i say it, it might be nutty nigel flat one that's just taking up all the time because as i said earlier i suppose the property manager quite understandably, just wants an easy life. You want me to do that? Yeah, I'll do it because it's not worth me upsetting the apple cart and ru ruining the relationship. But it's difficult for the property owner who then is effectively paying staff to do work that, that they're not being uh, getting any recovery on. It's, it is a really tricky one. And part of it 
think is the professionalization which Caroline was on about that people don't I, I still don't think people see property management as a profession it's just seen as a necessary evil and that you have to put up with these people that just send me a bill every now and again and don't do anything it, it was quite a shock coming to this industry the and I think this I'll do everything you want no matter what doesn't help with that professional image yeah, I think it's fair to say that. And I think we, we have to I think we have to be a bit bolder and a bit braver sometimes and say no and to protect the fees that we think we should charge. And we as an industry, we need to to sort of get a different message out there and that we are professional and, and as Caroline mentioned, we wouldn't treat solicitors or people wouldn't treat solicitors in the same way. So I think there's some work still to do on really getting people to understand what it means to be a managing agent. Because when you when I talk to people who don't own a flat, don't know anything about the sector, they're quite shocked at the volume of work and depth of knowledge it takes to do what we do. There's a comment from Emma here, people are undercutting, but I'm being bolder with fees. I think everyone in the industry must do this as we have so much more legislative change we must now deal with. It's a really good point. I think, Nigel, in armour days, there used to be a document which was a compilation of the bits of legislation that managing agents or that related to managing agents' work that we had to comply with. I don't know if that still exists. Uh, it still does. And there was another document about what does a managing agent do, so you can give that yeah, to Yeah, indeed. That's so something of that sort that you could put to a client or a prospective client and say, look, whoever you appoint, this is the list of stuff that they need to know about and that they need to make sure that if it's an RMC, you guys are compliant with to avoid you having any unforeseen liabilities or problems. Something I'll, it's not on the questions, it's thing I wanted to ask Shelley about, which is fair and reasonable. I use the example of Nutty Lige in, in flat one. There's a, there has to be a stage that you go, I can't do with you anymore because this is not fair, this is not reasonable. And does that mean you leave the property or are there, are there options available to you where you can serve a cease and desist, a deadlock letter or unreasonable behaviour policy or talk to the board? We've all experienced that where somebody just hoovers up enormous amounts of your time. Yeah. Generally not because of you. They've, they've got a beef against the landlord, whoever that landlord happens to be, and you're just a conduit to them. What do you think we can do in those sort of circumstances, Shelley? So I think the, in the first instance, it's really trying to understand what's really going on behind the scenes. Why is that person causing so much of an issue? We know that there are people who just like to be litigious and cause trouble, but more often than not, there's something else going on. So it, it tends to work where you have quite a frank conversation with that person. And if that doesn't work, then, yeah, then it's about discussing with the board. And we've all been in that situation where sometimes we have to walk away from instructions because those few people take up so much time and cause so much stress to our staff that it is better to walk away. I'm not saying that's a great thing, but sometimes that is the ultimate solution, which isn't brilliant. But I think in the first instance, it's trying to really understand and try and work with that person. But if if it's not working, then sometimes, yeah, we have to walk away. Yeah, it's, it's not easy because people will say, oh, bus drivers, they say, I'm not moving this bus unless. But of course, they can say that, whereas we have to engage with that person the next day, come on, mate. You can't just say, I'm never talking to you again. It's just not, a, not one that's available to us. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult, very difficult. And we, you know, we've been in that situation then. Walking away is the last resort, but sometimes for the sake of our staff and their stress levels, that's the only way, unfortunately. Mm. We, moving back to sort of the management agreement, I know some people looked at concepts of bronze, silver and gold. So instead of this, I'll do it all for X pounds or whatever, it's what do you want? If you want me to meet you once a month during office hours, 
and I'll do a monthly site visit, then that's this. And that then gave a scope that when somebody did come back and say, oh, sorry, it's Friday evenings, we need to see you now, you can go, we can do that. But then that's, as for the contract, silver level or gold level or whatever. Have either of you come across that or even employed that sort of mechanism? We haven't. We've been approached from time to time by people who've wanted us to do only part of the work, be it the secretarial side or the financial side. And we've always shied away from it, really. As personally, I feel it's very difficult to divorce one aspect of block management from another. Um, and to stop yourself just getting pulled into stuff. And I think it would be, what would the operational model look like in the office? Would you have one one PM for the gold, one PM for the silver, one for the bronze? Or do you have property managers with a mixture of all of them? And then PMs have got to make operational decisions on the hoof, haven't they, all day about whether they're actually supposed to be doing this. And if they're not supposed to be doing it, they've got to explain to the client that's not within the management agreement. And the client might not be, you know, that might be a leaseholder who hasn't been privy to the management agreement, other than they might have a copy of the sort of operational service elements of it, not the negotiations. I don't know. So I see that as a complicated approach, but I stand to be corrected. I don't know if there's anybody on today who's yeah. successfully employed that, that, that model. Let's hear from you if there is. I, mean, I agree with you, Martin. I kind of have this vision of somebody calling up and then somebody taking that call and then going, oh, well, let me just check which level of service. Oh, no, you're on the bronze service. We can't help you. You know, that that just, to me, yeah, I agree with Martin. I don't think operationally that's very practical. But similar to what you said, Martin, we have been approached to do certain aspects of the job, for example, just supporting people with major works. So where it's very, very clear that we're just doing X, I think that can work as long as it's very clear and that we don't get dragged in. But the concept of a different service level, yeah, I I think that would be difficult. And I'm so interested to see if anyone else has applied that model, because I can't see how it really works on the ground. One for you, Shelley, here, which is rather several. Uh, in this day and age with dementia becoming more prevalent, how do we deal with older clients who eat up our time? It's again, it's very difficult. We've got a few of those leaseholders, and unfortunately, it does require a bit more of a personal approach. We also have in some of our buildings people with very severe mental health issues and we that that have been quite challenging where it's possible and obviously done sensitively we ask if that person has someone else that we can contact on their behalf and that they give us permission to do that but yes it, it is again it is really hard but we have to be human at the end of the day and obviously people with dementia or mental health issues have to try our best but yeah it's difficult but where possible if it's an option to speak to a family member instead, that's that would be the best advice. That's what we try to do. Okay. I think, personally, I think it is vital. It's something that we should discuss with the clients in a lot more detail when you first sit down, rather than just that thing you throw at them and say, just sign on the bottom of page four, please. And then, as you say, Martin, you tend, not, tend to put it in a drawer then, except when it's time to apply the, uh, the RPIX or something. Yeah. I think, like you said, when I sold my company, we realised about 40% of our sites didn't have a management agreement. And it was a bit of a flattery because we go around the boards and say, ah, yeah, we know you guys, you're great. Don't worry about it. We just didn't have time to do it. But it's really difficult to get it through. But it it should set out the relationship. Yeah, I think if we had time, it would be lovely to be able to do a sort of data capture for each site each year. when, When you do the budget, part of that conversation with the clients is, how's it been for us? Yeah. But... That involves keeping specific records of what's gone on, and that all takes time. We're short of time. And, and as Shirley said, a lot of the time is invisible. You know, when I've explained my fees to somebody in the past, instead of accounts, they go, ah, there's 10,000 invoices that have had to be processed here and paid and verified and bank accounts. It's all hidden from you. 
you don't realize all this enormous amount of work that gets done in the background. All people see is the property manager wandering around or the lift not working, etc., etc. You've been listening to episode one, avoiding the pitfalls of management agreements from our Conversations with the Experts series. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again for episode two, the future of leadership in block management.